Section 4 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 19. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Manalakis. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 19, edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 4. The Field of Waterloo. Erastus Brooks, one of the editors of the New York Express, is now on a tour in Europe. He is a flowing and spirited writer and a good observer of men and things. From one of his last letters we extract his description of the present appearance of the memorable field of Waterloo, with some striking reminiscences of the battle. Waterloo, May 1843. Like a pilgrim, I have put my feet upon the soil of Waterloo traversing its fields, visiting its monuments, and tracing, step by step, those memorable movements of a day gone by, which in all time to come will distinguish the place where I am. It is impossible for any man to visit a scene like this, I care not how cold his temperament, with the same feelings that control him in the everyday affairs of life. It is true that nature wears the same smiling face here that it puts on elsewhere, that your eyes are greeted with fruitful and beautiful fields, that hillside and valley, the near and the distant land, alike teem with an abundance of the treasures of the earth. The lands, too, are only rich and plenteous by cultivation, and the day has passed, if it has ever been, as it probably has been, when the blood and bones of the thousands of victims who feel here a sacrifice to the fate of war serve to manure and beautify the soil. For one, I can see Waterloo rather with the soldier's enthusiasm or the traveler's romance. I have read with an interest that made the blood thrill quicker in the veins, the deeds of a day to endure forever in the memory of man, and I survey now, at this distance of time, the scenes where this great drama was enacted, as I would the spot had the curtain risen but yesterday to see it performed. Waterloo, though of itself all in the past, is as visible here to the eye now as are the recollections of its achievement to those who have just risen from the perusal of the results of the battle here fought. It is a morning in June, and the two contending armies are upon the ground of Waterloo. Napoleon is there, and Wellington is there, the master spirits of great and rival nations. The fate of empires are there also, and empires and kingdoms are represented upon the field. A day, one little day, almost the one-foot space of time in the life of man, is to destroy or save. Men are to be mown down like autumn leaves, but long-contending nations are to obtain peace and quiet at the sacrifice. He whose star for years had been far in the ascendant, who had given kings to nations and exacted obedience from subjects, who was here and there and everywhere and in all feats a conqueror whose genius was transcendent whose power irresistible and the mention of whose name was like the wand of a magician now the soldier now the council now the emperor and the man invincible is doomed like the hunted beast of the field or bird of the air to fly for his life and at last to be caught in the snare of the enemy here stood, too, where just now I stood, upon what is now the highway and crossroad, 
the only man who had been more successful than Napoleon. It is easy to imagine with what feelings, upon a day like that eventful one, commemorated around me by monuments innumerable. Wellington stood here, entrusted with his own fame and the fortune of his own and other nations all around him. Undaunted as the angel of death, ready to do or die, he is early at his post, fearing no evil for himself, but seeking to avert it from others. Both commanders were the very antipodes of each other in their schemes of military tactics, of different schools as of different minds. The one, the very inspiration of a wild and daring genius, ever moving on like a meteor in its course, and the other almost of a plodding firmness, seeking not so much how he may destroy the ranks of his foe, as gain, through their mishaps, advantages for himself. Two braver men, one can see here, if he knew it not before, the world had never seen, and successful as both had been, from time to time, in their peculiar modes of warfare, it would be presumption, perhaps, if success is truly to be the test of ability, to say who was the better soldier. At Waterloo, an honest Englishman will readily admit that Napoleon would have been the victor, had Wellington and his army been the only opponents to contend with. The advantages of position which Wellington had upon the field of battle twice made up for the disparity of the force of ten or twelve thousand men between the two armies. And no one can dream of the extent of this advantage of position, which had long before been selected by Wellington, who had, not for himself, surveyed the ground where the battle was fought. There could not have been selected from all the country around so good a natural defense for the Allied army, and there could not well have been a worse position for the army of the French. Wellington relied upon the superiority of his force, the courage of his men, and the coolness of himself and others in command. In firmness he expected to be invincible, but not of himself and the army that stood around him on the morning of the 18th of June, for there was no moment when he did not rely upon and look with longing eyes to the spot where Blücher and his Prussians must arrive. He had, it was true, the same confidence that Napoleon had through the day, but with a less boasting spirit. Would to God that night, or Blücher would come, was one of the natural but agonized expressions of Wellington, when told by an aide-de-camp that it was utterly impossible for one of his favorite regiments longer to maintain their ground. I cannot help it, said the Duke. They must keep the ground with myself to the last man. And then came that wish for Blücher which had often been uttered, and to realize which alone could ensure victory. Not only to Wellington and to England, but to Prussia and Holland and to Belgium. For all of these, with their hosts of generals and some of their bravest men, were in arms against one man and a single power. The day was everything to Napoleon as a man, and wrapped up in the glory of France as he was, he deemed it everything to France. His men had toiled with a cheerful spirit through a wet and dreary night, to be early in the field, and here they now were upon the ground opposite to that where I have just been, with Napoleon upon a neighboring eminence, acquainting himself with his map in hand, and at the earliest hours of the day, with every line and feature, road and pathway of the surrounding country, it was within an hour of midday when the emperor gave the word for attack. The English front did not extend more than a mile and a half, and the line of the French but half a mile beyond that of the English. 
for such a body of men, 80,000 in the one army, and from 65 to 70,000 in the other, no battle had ever been fought within so small a compass of land. The Chateau of Ugumont was the most important, and therefore the first point of attack by the French. The English had been strongly posted there, and it was a place which of itself was a strong defense. An easy victory would have been given to Napoleon had he become the possessor of the chateau. Once and again, and again, the left wing of the attacking army commanded by Jérôme Bonaparte advanced against the chateau. The battalions which occupied the wooden front for a time were scattered like chaff before the wind under the merciless fire of a superior force. A body of the last wing penetrated even to the house, but a second brigade of a chosen guard who occupied the chateau and lined the garden walls were in possession of the orchard and there strong enough to resist every effort to dislodge them. The French were thundering at the very doors of the chateau, but a reinforcement of English troops and a well-directed fire drove them back. Again they rallied and pushed onward, and again they were driven back in confusion. In thirty minutes of time, fifteen hundred men perished in the orchard of Ougoumont alone, and upon a piece of ground containing not more than four acres. A more frightful scene followed when the house was set on fire by the French. Friend and foe were now alike enveloped in the flames, and in the very thickest of the fire and smoke, the combat raged the fiercest. Each man maintained his ground in spite of fire and sword and while one of the outbuildings of the chateau was filled with the dying and wounded, who lay crowded in heaps together, dying as it were the thousand deaths of flame and fire, shrieking too until their cries of despair echoed through the woods and along the plain, the combatants were as fiercely fighting without, as if the scene of strife had been in an open field. The engagement here partook more of the ferocity of the wild beasts of the forest, made furious from hunger and confinement then of men engaged in a manly struggle to become victors. The wounded were many of them burnt alive, and in the agonies of a most horrible oath, the dying gave up the ghost. The living hereabout, in the meantime, man to man, fought with a desperation so fierce that they saw not the danger of the surrounding flames, and were at last engulfed in the fire, from which they could now make no escape. Thus hundreds and hundreds fell, and though the chateau had been reduced to a mere shell, the marks of which it carries now, in common with every spot around not covered by the face of nature, the British maintained their posts, and the French were driven back as often as they attempted to become masters of the field. All this, however, was but the movements of one wing of the French army, the French artillery, with columns of infantry and cavalry, while the left wing was the most fiercely engaged, had ascended the eminence occupied by the enemy. Whole squares of the British were mowed down like the grass of the field, but the chasms were as soon filled as made vacant, and here not one foot of ground was lost or won. Foiled here, Napoleon commenced a fierce attack on the left of the British army, in the hope of turning it, and separating the main army from the Prussians, and also cutting off the retreat in the direction of La Alson, should one be attempted. The maneuver was a bold one, and success and defeat were alternate. The French, however, conducted themselves worse here than anywhere else, and were often repulsed. The Scotch behaved most valiantly here, and one of their regiments was reduced to two hundred men. Three of the French regiments lost their eagles here, and in the British ranks, 
Sir T. Picton and Sir William Ponsonby lost what was more important, their lives. Napoleon was never idle, never disheartened. His position was a commanding one, and although amazed at the resistance he had met with, he was determined to move on and to give his enemy neither time for thought nor rest beyond the moment. The farm of La Elson, a position almost as important as the Chateau of Hougoumont, was the next point of attack, and if successful here, where the strength of the British army rested, and upon the road leading from Waterloo to Brussels, the means of retreat would be cut off, and the ranks of the British broken. The boldness of the enterprise was worthy of Napoleon, and showed how little he had been influenced by the reverses of the day, and how ready he was to make a bolder push than any he had yet attempted. The British commander penetrated the design of his foe, and at once prepared himself for the onslaught. The troops, for a time, stood like the embedded rocks. The farm was surrounded after an hour's contest, as severe as ever was waged, and the position was thoroughly carried only when the last of its defenders had ceased to breathe. Now was the brightest moment of the day for Napoleon. Fortune seemed to smile upon him most graciously, and under the two ardent anticipations of certain success, even to the end, it was here and now that he dispatched a courier to Paris, with the news that the battle was won, and France and her emperor were again victorious. End of section 4